This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, we're hitting a big one today. Death. Older people make up the vast majority of deaths in Australia, as you'd expect. The median age of death for women is 85. For men, it's 79. So when it comes to planning end-of-life care, there's actually not much attention on younger people, what they need specifically, and the support for those around them as well. Later, we're getting into something that nobody really wants to chat about, but it's important. We're taking you inside Australia's first hospice for young people, the young people who are dying. We'll be speaking with a grief expert about the conversations around death and why they don't have to be traumatic or overwhelming. We're getting to that later in the podcast. First, though... Hack! I want those people to have a right to be able to say, regardless of what's in the contract, I am working a permanent job... On Triple J. If you're a casual worker, how do you feel about it? Do you love the flexibility, bit of extra money with the casual loading... Or does it annoy you that you've been working regular hours for years, but you're still stuck as a casual? You don't get the leave and the certainty that other people get. Well, the government wants to change this. You might have heard Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burks announced today he wants a new definition of who is a casual. And if you're working the same hours as a permanent employee, you're potentially going to be able to say that you want to be made permanent. You want to get those extra things that you might be entitled to. Now, this could affect 850,000 workers across the country. If you're one of them, I'd love to hear from you. How stressful is it being a casual? Would you like to be made permanent? Is it something you've talked to your boss about? Call in 1300 You can also message in 0439757555. In a minute, we're going to speak to the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry to get the other side, what businesses think. We did ask Tony Burke, the Workplace Relations Minister, to come on hack. He wasn't available. So we're joined by Professor Ray Cooper from the University of Sydney, and she specialises in gender, work and employment relations. Ray, thanks so much for coming on hack. Just firstly, when you look at this plan, what do you reckon? Giving more workers access to permanent positions, I mean, it sounds like a good thing. Yeah, uh, look, for me, I think giving long-term casuals a bridge into permanent employment is a really good idea. And the suggestion essentially is to do a bit of a reality check. So if people are employed casually, so they're offered a casual contract when they commence work, that actually the test will be to look at what they're working. So if they're essentially working, uh, you know, really predictable hours and regular shifts uh, across a week over a long period of time, um, that that's going to be part of the test of, of trying to work out whether they should be casual or permanent. So I think, you know, on the whole, it's a good idea. So, Ray, who's most likely to benefit from this change? So I think it's the people who essentially are doing permanent work, but they're called casuals and they're paid as casuals. Long-term employees who are long-term casuals, so they're being paid the casual rate of pay, but they don't have access to things like um, sick leave, they don't have access to things like carer's leave and all the other things that that come along with permanent employment. So I think that it'll be those people. It won't be the people who work the, the shift every now and again Um, You know, maybe on a Tuesday, maybe on a Thursday night. Does gender play a role in this in terms of who is most likely to be a casual? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, we've got in Australia, we've got quite high rates of casualisation. So if you actually have a look at the OECD, which is essentially the group of the rich countries uh, across the world, Australia is sort of up pretty high in that group. And it's about 22, 23% on the last um, figures uh, of all employees are employed on a casual contract. 
the majority of those people are women. So, yeah, definitely impacts uh, women uh, more than men. But also um, probably for your uh, listeners, uh, young people are much more likely to be casual. So whereas it's, you know, 22 23% for the general population, we can be looking at about 40% of the under 25s might be casual. And then if you think about, I guess, the, the industries where young people are employed, hospo, retail have quite high rates of casualisation, up around the 40%. But also some of those really essential frontline areas. Um, so you're thinking about disability services, for example, 42% of people who work in that sector are employed on a casual basis. Um, yeah, so sort of it, it depends on sector, but it's certainly pretty pointy for women and um, something that really affects um, young workers too. When we talk about casual employment, you'll often hear people say, oh, well, there are lots of advantages to it as well. There's a lot of flexibility that's afforded to workers, also freedom, you know, if they don't want to work a particular day they don't have to work yeah. how do you respond to that is that is that true or do you think there are a lot of myths around casual work yeah look well? I think that's true for some people um and I think a lot you know there are some of the casual workforce would probably like to stay casual some people like to get that 25 percent loading some people don't really care about not having access to a sick leave and things like that but I think a lot of people change their minds through the period of the pandemic actually um so when you're in a situation where you've got to choose between um, not getting paid or going to work sick um, that's a pretty awful choice to have to make. And we know that a lot of people are often forced into going to work because they're casual and they won't get paid if they don't go to work. So, you know, flexibility is important for some people. So I teach at a university. A lot of my students work on a casual basis because they can fit it in around their hours at uni. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, other reasons why you might work um, casual and why you might like it. You might fit it in on top of another um, job that you're working but there are other people who I think if they had a genuine choice um, would actually like to be able to be employed on a um, permanent basis. And the issue with that is not just the pay, it's actually also about the extent to which they can have access to the same rights as everyone else. So if you're a permanent employee, you get access to sick leave, as I've talked about, you get access to carer's leave. If your kids are sick, you get access to bereavement leave and you also get to take holidays that are paid. Um, so all of those things that, you know, some people, people have different ways of thinking about it. Um, some people will really like the casual employment, but I think there's a whole lot of people out there in the labour market of our 22, 23% of the workforce who are currently casual, who I think would probably choose to be um, permanent if if they had a genuine choice. You mentioned before where we sit in global standards in terms of the OECD and how we have a, you know, high rate of casual workers in Australia. Has that increased over the years? Interestingly, it's been pretty stable, actually. Um, there was a big boom in casual employment in the early mid-90s, um, but it's essentially stayed, sort of hovers around that sort of 22 to 25% over time, so really for about 20 years as I've been tracking the figures. So, yeah, it's pretty stable, and that's a quarter of our workforce is casual and have been for 20 years, so, yeah. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Professor Ray Cooper from the University of Sydney about uh, the government's uh, big announcement today in terms of making it easier for casual workers to access permanent positions. Ray, are there other benefits of reducing our reliance on casual workers? Yeah, look, I think there's a fair bit of evidence internationally that where you're a permanent employee and you've got that sort of high feeling of safety and commitment at work, so from your employer, that, you know, that they're investing in you and you're there for the long haul, that that can be associated with higher productivity benefits. That's a bit of a no-brainer, really. Um, and also we know that permanent employment is much more likely to be associated with having a career path and being able to progress in your job. So it's often people who are in those casual jobs that sort of stay on that one hourly rate and tend not to move 
up through the career. So people who are permanent employers tend to invest in them some more. So there are some real benefits, I think, around um, productivity, but also around progression. And also like longer term, um, you know, the third P, productivity, progression, the other one is pay. People longer term um, will will earn more as they progress um, through permanent work. So there's a lot of benefits there, I think. Um, I think we've also got to think about the gender equality element, and I'm pretty interested in that in the research that I do, because we know that the majority of people who work casually are women, you know, and that's one of the big gaps that we see in the labour market structurally between men and women's work. If we can push more women, or not push, but, you know, see if women want to work more in that permanent um, part of the workforce, I think that's something that might actually even up um, you know, outcomes at work in terms of a range of things that, you know, we've been prioritising um, for a while in policy, which is things like closing the gender pay gap. Do you reckon there's a risk, though, that we could see employers start to change the way they employ people, cut hours, try to get around uh, any rules that would uh, force them to make a, a staff member permanent? Very cynical. <laughs> I know. Um, look, there's there's always dodgy employers out there, right? There's I think the majority of employers are, are good employers uh, and want to get the best out of their staff and you know do the, do the right thing by in terms of what they're legally responsible to do. But there are always dodgy employers, so I think yes, that's always a danger, um, and there's going to have to be some infrastructure around this. I think the good news is that there there is a capacity. So what this is doing is putting it into the hands of the employee to say, do you, would you like to be? Uh, employed on a on a permanent basis, you know, if there's a dispute about that, I understand that the idea is that then employees might be able to take that um, to the Fair Work Commission for some sort of arbitration. So there's a, I think the government's thinking through some of the risks that might be associated with this. Um, but as always, as I always say to my students, to my kids, to everybody else, keep your pay slips and ask for them if you don't get them. Um, keep your roster. Um, and the hours that you're working. Um, and if you're not given a roster in um, physical form, keep a note in your diary about what you're working um, because there are some employers out there who take advantage of people, particularly young people. And if you get into trouble and you feel like you're not being paid what you should be paid, either in this circumstance or any other, um, there's the Fair Work Ombudsman and you can always ring a union to get some advice about that. Hey, it's good advice. We very much appreciate it. Professor Ray Cooper from the University of Sydney, thanks very much for joining us on Hack. Pleasure. Hack. On Triple Jack. We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, I've just left my job as I've been working 38 hours a week for five years as a casual worker and they refuse to make me permanent. Another person says, you know, it's the same if you put your loading away, if you compare it with annual leave and sick leave. If you're good with money, it's just like full time anyway. We've also got some people on the line as well. Isaac from Albury is with us. G'day, Isaac. Uh, what do you think of this? What's your situation? Hey Dave, hey, um, yeah, so my partner is currently in hospitality and she's on a casual contract. Um, actually, to be honest, I think everyone at the cafe is on a casual contract. I don't even think they have any full-time employees. Um, and she's just finding it really difficult at the moment and with um, trying to get, uh, not trying to get hours. She's working the same hours every time, but she feels like if she says no or needs to change in hours because we have kids, She's finding it really, really difficult. Yeah, and uh, that's what we're hearing, Isaac. There's someone on the text line here that says the idea that casuals can just not work a day if they don't want to is bull because I actually feel more compelled to work because my boss can, uh, you know, cut my hours if something comes up and I miss a couple of shifts. So it sounds like, Isaac, it's a similar situation uh, and yeah, stress 100%. that your partner... Like she's sick at the moment. Like, um, she's feeling quite sick at the moment. But she feels like she can't not go to work tomorrow 
because if she does, they might just cut her hours altogether. Right. Oh, um, well, that's yeah, which is really terrible. And in 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 the hospitality where they're you know serving coffee and serving food, do you really want someone who's sick? You know, serving you food. Hey, Isaac, thank you very much for calling in with that. Um, you know, it's obviously a very stressful situation your partner's in. I've got Nolan on the line from Brisbane. Hey, Nolan, what's what's your view on all this? I reckon uh, being a casual worker is fantastic. Uh, mainly, well, like it to me, it's sort of like being full time anyway. You just got to be better at budgeting, and if you don't get sick too often, and uh, you end up leaving your place of employment, you don't get paid out any of that sick leave. Say you work from for like five years, at say two weeks a year, you're not going to see any of that money. So, um, in in and all, all my colleagues are casual and they would prefer to be like that. Um, but I'm, I'm in construction, mate. Maybe that's different to uh, to other industries. But, um, yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, and there are people that agree with you, Nolan, who are saying, no, I choose to be casual and I do back it. And, look, I guess this is not forcing people away from casual work. They're still going to have the option is what the government is saying. Let's get into this a bit more. We've got with us Andrew McKellar, the Chief Executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Uh, hi, Dave. Great to be with you. I imagine many businesses may not be too impressed with this plan from the government. What's your initial take on it? Well, look, I think this comes down to a fundamental issue. You've got to get the balance right. Um, so uh, as we've been hearing for, you know, some people, casual employment uh, is the right option. And particularly, you know, when you're looking at smaller businesses uh, in retail, in hospitality, restaurants, uh, cafes, uh, you know, um, you know, where you're employing younger people, uh, it works both for the business uh, and for, you know, people coming into the workforce. Uh, even for people, you know, uh, if you've had kids, uh, you want to get back into the workforce, then it also can work for them. So I think it's a matter of getting the balance right at the moment. Um, let, let's uh, let's not, uh, you know, get it wrong. There, there are already provisions that after 12 months as a casual employee, um, your employer must come to you under the law and give you the option to convert to permanent employment. So there is a protection there. There is that opportunity there. Um, It works for some businesses and it works for some employees. Um, Overwhelmingly, people, when they're given that choice, still opt to stay with casual employment. So, look, I think here, you know, let's get the the, the, the balance right. Um, and let's ensure that we're doing the right thing by small business and by those people uh, who, you know, think that it's uh, the best option for them. I mean, we are hearing from people on the text line as well saying, yeah, someone says, I work in the industrial relations space and there is a big gap in educating casuals regarding their rights because there are rights there. I'm just Mm. wondering, Andrew, if it is you know, not a huge amount of people that you're expecting who are going to want to switch to permanent employment. Like I I think I saw you say earlier today, one or 2%, you think. Mm. Uh, If it's not going to have a huge impact, then why not just do it? Well, I think here the the issue that we have with what the government is proposing, and not not all of the the details are in the public space yet, but uh, I think uh, it goes back to getting the balance right. Now, if it is uh, a situation where there it, it suits the business, you know, um, then I think that's one thing. But if you put all of this across into the hands of one side in the equation, it's just the employee's choice, then it's not going to work uh, for some businesses in those circumstances. I guess people would say, isn't it too far skewed in the other direction? Like you don't want it all skewed towards businesses and the employees feeling like they're missing out. 
Well, look here, I mean, you, you go, go back to what is in the law at the moment, what has happened uh, when these issues have gone through the court system. Uh, fundamentally, the courts have said uh, it's down to the employment uh, contract. That should be the primary reference as to what defines that employment relationship. Um, and, and that has to be signed by two parties. It has to be signed by the employer and it has to be signed by the employee. So, you know, let's keep the balance right. Um, there should be a consultation. Of course, the employee's perspective should be part of that discussion. And I think any responsible employer should take account of trying to get a solution that works not just for them, but also for their employees. So look, I don't think we can skew this uh, too far one way or the other. If you get that balance right, then I think we will have better outcomes. Can I ask about the cost? Because I've seen this raised today as part of the discussion as well. People saying it's going to cost businesses so much, uh, it's going to be uh, really detrimental to their bottom line. The Minister, Tony Burke, says he doesn't see in a million years that there'd be an additional cost for businesses. How do you respond to that? Oh, look, it's something uh, we are doing some work on at the moment. We're trying to evaluate exactly what that cost will be. In the past, there have been, uh, you know, uh, calculations of that and they were uh, significant. So, But essentially look, I, it is the loading is, you know, the same as if you're paying leave, right? That's how it should be. Well, look here, I think there is the issue about, uh, you know, how, how that's going to impact uh uh, for individual uh, businesses, uh, and that is that is very hard to say upfront. But look, certainly for smaller businesses, uh, this this is about how they um, you know how they make their business work. If they are forced into a situation where they've got to take people uh, to work when they don't have customers, uh, then they're losing money hand over fist in those uh, circumstances. So I think that's that's the situation where the cost uh, starts to add up and I think that's the real risk with this proposal. Well, hey, they're definitely getting a lot of feedback on it and we are getting mixed uh, opinions. People saying that they'd love to be made permanent, others saying they love being casuals as well. Andrew McKellar from the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, I have no doubt we're going to be ch- chatting later in the year as more of the detail around this is revealed. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Anytime. Thanks, Dave. And remember, like you can keep messaging in. We've got messages on the text line. Someone says, I'm a casual and this change terrifies me. I've always felt trapped in permanent jobs and been miserable and unproductive. I've uh, been casual for two years. I've never felt more empowered, free and connected to the work. Someone else, I worked five years full time, never took a sick day and lost them when I quit. Wasn't allowed to take sick days for specialist appointments, working casual and studying and enjoying the flexibility. That's from Tom. Amy in Sydney says, as someone who's working seven to eight hour shifts, four days a week for the same shifts, I'd quite like to have the option of getting leave rather than being jerked around by my employer. So, so many people on the text line with their different experiences. Time to move on though. And just a heads up, we're about to talk about some really serious stuff. We're talking death. We're talking dying. It's not a topic everyone's comfortable listening to. So just a warning about that. Hack. If you have a capacity to make a difference, why wouldn't you do it? On Triple J. I think it's fair to say that a 20-year-old has different priorities in life than an 80-year-old. So if you think about it, why shouldn't they have different priorities in death too? This is a heavy topic, but it's an important one. At the moment, most end-of-life services like hospices and palliative care are targeted at older people. And it makes sense because, you know, most Australians are dying at an older age. But if you are a young person with a life-limiting illness, and when we say life-limiting, we mean an illness that can't be cured, that you're likely to die from, Well, then the services for older people, they're not necessarily right for you. 
Today, the government launched a plan on how services can be better targeted. Our reporter, Shalala Madora, visited the first hospice for young adults, and she brings us this story. Hi, how are you? I'm Shalala. Nice to meet you. Taya Yates is showing me around the adolescent and young adult hospice in Manly. It's nested on top of a hill, overlooking the rolling waves of Sydney's northern beaches. It's beautiful view. I can see why it's popular. It is gorgeous. Come on through. Thank you. It's the first of its kind in Australia, a service aimed solely at people aged 15 to 24 who have serious disabilities or a life-limiting illness. It's a time when they're going through, I guess, you know, emotional changes, social changes, physical changes, etc. And I think they need to have that sort of different area which is purpose-built for them where they can interact with others that are going through similar challenges. Most end-of-life care in Australia is, understandably, aimed at people in their 70s, 80s and older. But young people have totally different needs. It's more like a hangout is what it feels like. Patrick Nolan is a 21-year-old uni student with muscular dystrophy. He comes to this facility for respite care, along with his friend Scott, who also has the condition. Well, respite care is, for me, it's just the holiday from my life. Patrick says the hospice here in Manly has given him the opportunity to talk with his friend, watch movies and just be a young person. When Scott and I were here last, we were staying up late, just you know, messing around like any young person can do. And um, for me, that that's a bit of a challenge outside of this place. It's not your typical hospice. So I guess this room's kind of not just designed for um, our patients, but also with our families and siblings in mind. They'll, you know, play a bit of pool, table tennis, playstations. So it's just a bit of a room to get away. Yeah, so we spent quite a few nights down here watching movies, chatting. I mean, it was sort of like a you know, private escape from upstairs, so mm. we could be as loud as we wanted. The eight-bed hospice only opened its doors in February and it's funded through New South Wales Health, charity The North Foundation and donations from the community. Taya says letting young people with life-limiting illnesses be themselves around other young people is crucial. I think it's really important that they have this space to come together that's different from um, you know, a hospital environment, if you like, where you've got lots of different ages what they want to be doing at 21 years of age are very different than what you want to be doing at 81 years of age. Sarah Fleming is a nurse practitioner who's worked in paediatric palliative care for 24 years. The purpose of the palliative care um, service provision really is to live life as fully and as well as possible for as long as it is. Sarah gives us an example of how palliative care can sometimes be at odds with the needs of young people. There was great distress in the family and distress experienced by the parents because this young person, um, they wanted to go to a party. Their life at that point in time was anticipated to be in terms of months at best. Going to a party seems like a pretty normal thing to do. But when you're sick, it can be risky. And what if they drank and they're on opioids? And what if they, um, you know, became physically unwell and, and et cetera? And to the young person, it was like, I just want to do something normal. And that's why palliative care needs to take into account what it's like to live as a young person and what it's like to die as a young person too. There hasn't been a national strategy on how to appropriately address young people's end-of-life needs. 
until now. We brought together as many people as we that we could over the last couple of years to build this action plan, so it's ready to go. Assistant Health Minister Jed Carney today launched the Paediatric Palliative Care Action Plan, which covers end-of-life for children, adolescents and young adults. It ensures families and the carers of infants and children with life-limiting condition um, understand their palliative care options, they get the information and the care that they need. Minister Carney, who was a nurse before entering politics, has a personal connection with this cause. My 17-year-old nephew had a uh, sarcoma that we knew was really not treatable and that he had a very short life expectancy. And he wanted to do all those things young people want to do in the time he had left. Going to sporting events, you know, perhaps even going out, having a drink with his mates, hanging out with his friends. So she had to reframe her thinking about what was best for her nephew and says that's what this plan is all about. You know, it's so important to involve young people um, in the decision-making around the end of their life. It's their life. And I'm really proud of this plan and I think it's going to go a long way uh, to to making what is a very sad and, and difficult process a lot easier. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora there. And I want to get into this a little bit more now because, you know, it can be upsetting, even traumatic, talking about death. But does it need to be that upsetting? Well, Sonia Fenwick is a grief and bereavement counsellor at the Canberra Grief Centre and she's with us now. Hey, Sonia, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me along. Why do you think we are so uncomfortable talking about dying, especially when it comes to young people? I think there are a lot of reasons, actually. Um, For some people, um, being in the presence of conversation around death, dying or grief might touch on a previous experience they've had and so they're still carrying pain um, and rawness around that loss. Um, For young people too, um, the conversations can be difficult if there's been role modelling in the family or from others around them, other adults, suggesting that we don't talk about those things. And so that sort of sets off a norm about how we do or don't do death and discussions of of that nature. And also it's a very confronting topic. I mean, often when we're in life and we're living, that's sort of our focus. And so discussions around death can be perceived as heavy and negative and burdensome to be around. Um, And I think more and more discussions around dying, grief and death are perceived as, you know, someone having poor mental health and, um, again, sort of too heavy to be around. So I think there are some obstacles that can prevent us from having the conversation. But most often what I hear from young people is we don't know what to say We're afraid of making it worse for the bereaved or, yeah, we just don't know what to say in that space. Is it a lot easier to start talking about this earlier? Like when do you think we should start these conversations? Because obviously if you're diagnosed with one of these illnesses that makes it inevitable to chat about it, you're going to have to do it. But should we be thinking about death a lot earlier than that? Well, death is all around us and there are primary school age children talking about death. I mean, we're exposed uh, to death at an early age, whether it be death of a pet or a grandparent 
or sadly a death of a sibling or a parent at a very young age. I mean, many of the um, animated children's movies like Nemo and Superman and Spider-Man and Tarzan have the stories of the loss of a parent and coping through the grief of those particular characters. But certainly as we move into that 16, 17, we're adulting, um, we, you know, we do need to be having those conversations. We're certainly becoming more exposed to death, whether it's death of a friend, death of grandparent, um, and, and from all sorts of modes of death, whether it's uh, a chronic illness or a sudden loss such as an accident, a vehicle accident or suicide. So we're certainly becoming uh, more aware of death around us. Um, so it, they are important conversations to not feel alone in or experiences to not feel alone in. Um, but also there are different ways to have conversations about your own death. Um, what are your wishes? And I've known um, parents who've had a young person die um, know very clearly what that person wanted in terms of their wishes at a funeral, yeah. cremation or burial. So some young people are having those informal conversations sure. with parents Mm. Well, Sonia Fenwick, thank you so much for breaking that down. It's true, everyone's at a different stage, I guess, but we appreciate your insights. Sonia Fenwick, Grief Counsellor at the Canberra Grief Centre, thank you for coming on Hack. And remember, if you are struggling, Lifeline is always there. The Grief Line is there too, 1300 845 745. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.